All right, so today I'm going to end the righteousness series with a verse, going through a verse, mainly just one verse or two verses here. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon or even heard anybody unpack before. So I hope you'll find it as, as interesting as I have. This is a verse that is actually uh, referred to fairly often, but seldom dug into. So it's in uh, Matthew 10, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Now, when Jesus says these words, he is in the process, as verse 5 says, of sending out his disciples. And he's giving them instructions as he sends his disciples out. And in verse 16 he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So what we're going to talk about today is righteousness looking like being wise as serpents or shrewd or crafty as serpents and harmless as doves. What does that mean? What does that look like? So what we're going to do is we're going to first unpack these words in these verses and look at the verse from the standpoint of what, what do these words mean? And then we're going to look at two examples. We're going to look at the example of Jesus, and we're going to look at the example of David actually applying these principles that we're going to come up with as we go through this verse. So I think you'll find this very interesting because righteousness involves us being as crafty as serpents. That's not usually something that you you get on um, a um, Christian bumper sticker. Okay, so behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this is fairly plain, I think. Let's just think about that for a minute. I don't, I don't think there's any hidden meanings here. We have some cows, and these cows birthed calves in this, this spring. And we had a bunch of coyotes come in and kill the calves and eat them. And what they do is they catch them when they're first birthing. Generally speaking, a mama cow can take care of a coyote with no problem. They'll just stomp them to death. That's not an issue for them at all. But after they've had birth, they're exhausted and they can't get up to protect the calf and so they'll take the calf when it's vulnerable and the, the cows kind of go off by themselves to birth. I don't know why a cow feels like it needs privacy, but some, somehow I guess that's a part of the deal. And so, you know, we've seen that what happens, and a calf, of course, is way bigger than a sheep and way more capable than a sheep, and a coyote's a lot smaller than a wolf. So we've seen this firsthand, what happens with predators and prey. You know, a wolf is twice as big as a coyote, and a sheep is as dumb as a rock. You know, uh, some people that I know have raised sheep. I've never raised sheep, but some people we know raised sheep said that a good description of a sheep is an animal looking for a place to die. They're just so dumb. If you don't, if you don't lead them to everything, they'll just uh, perish. So a sheep walking into a pen full of wolves, what's going to happen? They're going to eat you, right? So the picture that Jesus gives them is, you're the sheep, and I'm sending you out into a wolf pack. So how do you feel right now if you're the, uh, if you're the disciples? All right, well, if you're going to go out into the wolf pack, you need to, some preparation. So what's the preparation? Therefore, okay, because I'm sending you like in the midst of these wolves, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is how you as a sheep protect yourself from the wolves. Okay, well, so let's just look at these words. There's a little more to these. Let's look at the idea of being wise as a serpent. 
Let's look at 2 Corinthians 11.3. We'll see the same word, serpent. This is Paul speaking now. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3. So serpents deceived by craftiness is what this 2 Corinthians says. This word crafty... It's the Greek word panorgia. Panorgia. And it's also found in Luke 20, 23. So let's just look at Luke 20. And we'll start in verse 19. And we're going to see this word crafty. So the serpent is crafty. And we're going to look at this thing crafty. Because this is the characteristic that we're supposed to adopt, interestingly enough. So this is Jesus. It says the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus. But they feared the people, for they know he had spoken this parable against them. So why would they fear the people, the Pharisees? They fear what the people think because their power comes in manipulating the people. So bear that in mind. So they watched him. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to, to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. So this is the craftiness of Satan here. They're serpents. They're being serpents. But he perceived their craftiness. Now how would Jesus perceive their craftiness? He was himself crafty without being evil. See, that's the point here. What we're supposed to do is be able to understand what craftiness looks like, discern their craftiness. Why? Because they're wolves and we don't want them to eat us, right? So we discern their craftiness without being evil. What we're going to see here as we go through this is the craftiness is craftiness. I mean, you're either crafty or you're not. We tend not to be crafty because we like the truth. If you're going to be a liar, you have to be crafty because lying takes a lot of work. You've got to keep up with what you said and you've got to have you know, a strategy and you've got to figure out how to manipulate people. You know, what, what gets this person to like me or what gets this person to do what I want to do? I mean, you have, you have to be crafty. If you just live a truthful life, it's pretty simple, really. You, you don't have to keep up with much stuff. It's pretty simple. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be simple, but crafty. And the main difference is just... Why are you being crafty? And Jesus, of course, is being crafty here because he has a mission to obey the Father and to serve others. That's his craftiness. The Pharisees have a craftiness to elevate themselves and seize power over others. So that's the difference. The actual craftiness itself is, I think, kind of amoral, being crafty. It's how you apply it. So let's look at how the Pharisees were crafty because this will tell us something about what it's like to be crafty as a serpent. Go back to verse 20. They watched him. So number one, what, what do you do if you're going to be crafty? Number one, you've got to study the person that you're trying to affect. You've got to understand who they are, what drives them, what motivates them, how different words affect them, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. I do a lot of stuff in politics, and I have quite a few friends that have gone into that den of wolves. And what they tell me is that there's a group of lobbyists there. The minute you arrive, they start studying you. They start probing you for weaknesses. Is it drugs? Women? Power? Prestige, position, 
What is it that you're after? Because they are trying to figure out, how can we corrupt this person? If we can just get them to take one thing, then we got them. And that way, they become a commodity we can buy and sell. The really dangerous person in politics is someone who just is principled. Because then, these lobbyists, they don't have anything to buy and sell. How can you buy and sell principle? They're out of business if that happens. Okay? They're very crafty. And they study people to figure out how to corrupt them. Well, that's what they did here. And how did they study him? Well, they sent in spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words. Obviously, the spies were found out, else we would not know this happened, right? I don't know if Jesus told the disciples this is what's happening or whether they found out some other way, but obviously they knew that this was what is going on. And what is their aim? They want to seize on his words. Okay, so we're studying to the point where we can use your words against you to accomplish this end, to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Now, at this time in history, only the governor had the power to execute people. So they wanted to deliver him to the governor. And the way they did it was with a tic-tac-toe strategy. If the answer to should we pay taxes is yes, you should pay taxes, then they know they're going to drive a wedge between him and all the people that are following him. Because the conventional wisdom at that point was this is a pagan nation that's in occupying us. And if we pay taxes to them, then it's immoral. You know, they're an ungodly uh, ruler. And so if he says, yes, pay taxes, they got him that way. But that's not what they expect him to do. They expect him to say no because they set it up. You know, you're righteous, you're moral, you're, you're, you would never do anything that's against the people, against God, and against the Bible. Never, not you. So they set it up and say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar, expecting him to say, of course not. And then they're going to go get to Caesar and say, hey, so this guy says, don't pay taxes. He's an insurrectionist. Look at all these people fall. Him, you need to kill him. We, we want you to kill him. That was, that was the plot. So they're doing opposition research, essentially, really studying not only just what his strengths and weaknesses are, but his very words so they can see his vulnerabilities. That's shrewd. That's shrewd. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at people and study them. And we'll see more about that in a minute. False teachers are people we're supposed to ferret out. And if they're false teachers, we're supposed to identify them and get them out. That's what we're supposed to do. We've got to study. And that requires us to see things as they are. Now you say, well, I like to think the best of people. That's fine. That's great. Well, we should do that. We want to continue to be innocent. But at the same time, when someone's in a position of authority, you've you got to be discerning. And then he perceived their craftiness, and he's crafty right back. I'll, I'll see you, and I'll up you. Okay? So he says, uh, why do you test me? So first of all, I know what you're doing. I'm going to call you out for what you're doing. So I, I know this is what's happening here. So that's letting everyone else know this is not a genuine question. And secondly, show me a denarius whose inscription on it. Caesar, they say. Well, render under Caesar what Caesar, under God's what's God. From that point on, they, they'd say, okay, this doesn't work. We've got to find another strategy of some kind. Because he outcraftedness them. Okay? So that is craftiness. So they have um, opposition research. They do the understanding. Then they come up with a plan. Then they execute the plan. So let's look at Luke 4.13. Because that's uh, something that's interesting to look at. Because the devil, of course, is the ultimate serpent. And after he had tempted Jesus, Jesus says, you know, be gone. And then it says here, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, Jesus, until an opportune time. So the devil does this same thing. He studies people. And he looks for an opportune time to come in and tempt. 
He didn't just keep tempting Jesus continually. He's looking for an opportune time. And this again is what craftiness looks like. It looks like seizing the moment. Jesus didn't go call these guys out for being disingenuous until the time when he says, why do you test me? Let's look at, so uh, look at John 2.24. John 2.24. 23 here. I'll start. Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And these people believed in him, right? But he understands something about those people. Okay, I, I see that they're people I'm ministering to. That's great. But I understand that they still have a, a lot of baggage, a lot of problems. I'm not going to entrust myself to them. So we'll, get, we'll do that again in a second. So serpents are crafty. Craftiness looks like having understanding about what the other person's really trying to do, what they're really trying to accomplish, and having a plan on how to execute uh, that understanding. But we, we are to be harmless. So uh, let's look at that word. Harmless. Look at Romans 16:19. Romans 16:19 says, For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. This word simple in Romans 16, 19 is the same word akarios as the Greek word translated harmless in Matthew 10, 16. Okay, so be simple concerning evil. Be harmless. Be innocent, some translations will say. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, I, I think it at least some aspect of it is the ability to execute the understanding of what it takes to manipulate other people. Okay? So, it's one thing to understand what manipulation is and how it works. It's another thing to be a practitioner of it. So, if you understand, oh, this is a lie, this is how lying works, this is what this person's going to do, and this is how we can counter it, that's crafty and it's simple. But if you understand and delve down into, well, now I want to actually be a practitioner of the psychology of manipulation. I I want to be a practitioner of lying myself. I'm going to counter a lie with a lie. Because my moral high ground is better than their moral high ground. And if if an ends justifies for the means for them, so much more so for me. No, that's not what we do. We remain, you know, telling the truth is simple. And if you can't find a true way to counter the lie, then you just hadn't researched enough. You hadn't studied them enough. So we remain simple with respect to this craftiness. We don't, we don't become practitioners of the manipulation, but we understand it and how it works. Okay? I think that's what it's talking about here. Be harmless. Be innocent. Be simple. Understand the false teachers. Understand the liars. Understand the manipulators. But not enough to emulate them. Just enough to counter them. You know, if you're cynical, you'll usually be right. But cynical usually implies that you're living as a victim. You're living under circumstances. Ah, oh, well, that'll never work. They'll, they'll betray me. I can't do it. Now, I can't, I can't entrust myself. They'll do, no, that, I've, do, I've had a friend before. That's never going to... They made me feel bad. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> I had a dog once. He died. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, that's what the, the connotation of the term. But there's, there's a healthy cynicism, and this is one of the other paradoxes in life. You know, we're supposed to live paradoxes. God is paradoxical. We're supposed to embrace these paradoxes and live with the tension. That's what faith is. Okay, Faith is living with the tension. So I understand this person may leave me, 
They, you know, bad things may happen. Well, I, they certainly will in time. You know, bad things are going to happen. But there's a greater purpose here. You know, there's a greater purpose here. I'm not going to be a victim of that circumstance if and when it happens. I'm going to enjoy what is, and then if my loved one passes, or if my dog dies, or if someone betrays me, I'll, I'll live through that. See, we, we can do both. We can be cynical but not live under the circumstances, not live as, as a victims. I thought as Lord of the Rings uh, an analogy for this. Simple versus complex, harmless versus not harmless. There's these characters in this epic uh, battle where the, the evil guy Sauron, the Satan character really, Sauron, his eyes always looking. He's always studying. What is he studying? Just like the Pharisees did. He's looking for opportunity to advance his power. He wants to be the worldwide tyrant. And no one, no one has any freedom or love or happiness in the world. He's just, it, there's nothing but death, destruction, and him in control. That's Sauron. And so there's these positive characters that are wizards. There's Gandalf and there's Saruman that are wizards. And Gandalf is at, at one point offered the ring that Sauron puts all of his, invests all of his power in. And Gandalf says, no, no, don't give me that thing. I'll just become Sauron. Self-awareness. He really understands it. That's not the answer. At some point in the epic, Gandalf says, you know, I've noticed really it's small acts of kindness that hold back the darkness. That should be in the Bible. It's so good. <laughs> and then there's this other wizard, Soramon, who's actually superior to Gandalf in the, in the story. And he, he has this uh, ball he can look into and see everything that's going on, and including Sauron. And, and he looks and he says, ah, we're going to lose. This evil's too overwhelming. We can't resist. And so he says, yeah, if we're going to lose anyway, I might as well get some. And so he, he converts over and to become one of Sauron's puppets and, you know, ends up uh, as a pathetic figure. Well, so he didn't remain harmless. He didn't remain innocent. He didn't remain simple. He said, uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and practice this. And I, I, maybe I can probably, you know, I can do some good if I'm on the winning side. It'll be better than if I just die. That's the way you can rationalize it, right? I can do some good. I'll go and get this power and then I'll try to help out and do some good. Well, you know how that always turns out. And Gandalf says, it, does, it looks hopeless. It totally looks hopeless. But the, our job is not to ensure outcomes. It's to take a stand. And our stand will be glorious. Okay, that's pretty good. That's, that's a pretty good analysis, analogy for what this looks like. Nobody is shrewder than Gandalf. He understands Sauron. He understands the way of Sauron. But he will not adopt the Sauron. When the ring's offered to him, he won't take it. He remains harmless. He remains simple. This is a good analysis. Okay, so serpents, crafty. They understand the other person and what the other person's after and how they're going to act. And a, a serpent, though, is going to have the goal of eating the other person. The wolf, the ravenous wolf. We, on the other hand, we're going to understand the wolf, understand what they're going to do, understand how to counter it, but so that, that we won't get eaten, because we're simple. All right, and harmless as doves. And, of course, you know dove. You know, you go out and hunt a dove, you don't have to do the precautions like you do if you go out and hunt a lion, right? There's no, there's no counterattack that will ever come from a dove. You know, only if they roost over your car. That's the only way they can, that's the only way they can get you. Okay, so we have kind of this craft, craftiness, 
harmless innocence. And then we have beware of men. So beware of men. So be sim- cynical while still being optimistic. This this paradox. Okay, beware. So I look, we looked at this, John 2.24. Jesus did not entrust himself to these people who had believed in him. Why? Because he knew the heart of men. They, he knew they're still corrupt. Okay? And this word entrust is pistuio, it's which is trans, you know, the believe and, and trust. Like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. It's the same kind of thing. He did not entrust himself to these people because he understood he's crafty. He knows, hey, yeah, I can minister to them, but I can't, I can't like depend on them because they're not dependable. He, un- he understands who he's dealing with. Does that mean he doesn't still love them? Does that mean he still doesn't want their best interests? Look, the Bible's full of warnings about the corruption that's in the world. Just be wise about it. Matthew 7:15 starts to introduce kind of the whole idea of false prophets, false teachers, and this is a subcategory. So Jesus was cynical about just regular people, which is appropriate. You know, just have your eyes open, realize what can happen. Uh, we're, we're not trying to get off mission. We're just trying to be real, we're trying to see current reality. But then there's this whole category of false teachers. And he says here, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these first characteristic of a false teacher is they're going to look awesome. They're going to look great. They're going to look wonderful on the outside. You can't figure out who's a false prophet by the way they look. And matter of fact, the better they look, the more suspicious you should be. I had an old cynical banker that uh, I worked with long ago. And he said, you know, I've noticed that anytime somebody talks like religious talk, you need to run the other direction. And he said, the first guy I ever had talked to me about like religious talk in a business context was Billy Saul Estes. Now, for you younger people, Billy Saul Estes is a, the Bernie Madoff of the 60s. Okay? And he was from Pecos. He was a Church of Christ preacher. And he said he came in and he said, well, the Lord told me to do this and the Lord told me to do that. And I'm going to do this good with that. Well, what, apparently what the Lord told him to do is falsify a bunch of inventory on fertilizer and borrow money on it and pocket it and have a good life. That's apparently what the Lord told him to do because that's what Billy Saul Estes did and bribe a federal judge to get him out of uh, hot water. There's Billy Saul. Okay? Furthermore, this old cynical banker who was very crafty in the ways of the world he said, any time somebody comes in and says, boy, you can trust me, I'm honest. All that means is they're dishonest. In fact, if you'll listen to political rhetoric, when this, these leftists that are all over the place now, when they start attacking and accusing, you know what they're doing? They're telling you what they're doing. That's pretty much, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. But that, that's what liars do. If they attack you for what they're doing, it creates a double cover. See? Because now everybody's focusing on that with you and they won't look at them. And if you do figure out what they're doing, they can say, oh, sour grapes. You're just na-na-na-na. The only reason he's saying that is because I said it first. That's because they're crafty, but evil. That's what happens. All right, look, they'll look great on the outside. Look at Matthew 24, 10 through 12. This is Jesus speaking. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and they'll hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So this is another thing that you can tell about with false prophets. When division is happening, there's usually falsity in there somewhere. And usually at first glance, whoever looks the best on the outside is the one you ought to be suspicious of. Because false prophets thrive on division. That's how they separate out 
the sheep that they can eat from the sheep that are wary. Because wary sheep are a danger to them, see? And so if there's anybody in the population that's shrewd, you've got to get those out guys out and shun them or else you can't get control of everyone because the eating of a false prophet is the getting, gaining of control over them. Look at Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Okay, so this is another thing. Flattery is an integral part of false prophet. But both seeking it from others, if you see someone that really thrives on flattery, your antenna should go up. Your red flag should go up. And if you see someone who's using flattery, uh, beware. Okay, beware. Look, do some research. Look under the hood. See what's really there, if that's the case. False prophets. Acts 13.6. This is now Paul. When they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, this is the same guy, his name's translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So what false prophets are really good at is creating division and eliminating competition. So when you see someone that's really trying to attack other people, you know, that's probably a pretty good sign that you ought to take a close look. Division, uh, exclusion, attacking other people to get them out. Uh, these are all tools that the false prophets take. Second Corinthians 11:13. For such, and these are boastful people and desired uh, that are self-seeking, are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Necessarily, anybody who fits this term of a category, rather a false prophet or false teacher, is going to be a religious leader. You know, you're not going to be a false teacher and be somebody that says, I don't believe in that Christianity stuff. They're going to be inside, and they're going to look good, and they're going to be in authority. So that's why we're supposed to be careful. Be shrewd. Be shrewd. Be cynical without being pessimistic. All right, so be crafty without being self-centered. So here we are. Those are the words. We have serpents, doves, and be wary. Because we're going to be crafty. Now let's look at a couple of examples real quick. One we've already looked at briefly. But let's just look at it a little more in depth. Well, actually, we've gone through this passage multiple times. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And this is Jesus versus the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, we've already gone through and saw how they studied Jesus. But now we're going to look and see how Jesus studied the Pharisees. Listen to this. And we've gone through this passage before, but now we're looking at it from a different perspective. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore whatever they tell you to do, observe. That observe and do. But do not do according to the works, for they say and do not do. Now how did he know that? He'd watched them, right? For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves will not move them with one of their little fingers. How did he know that? He had been watching them, right? He was watching them and he was understanding what he was seeing as he watched them. They make their phylacteries, broaden and enlarge the board of the garments. They love the affection of men. They love flattery. They love the best places to feast, the best place in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, to be called rabbi by everything. They love flattery. But the, what they should do is like uh, humility. But do, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. You shouldn't be elevating yourself and trying to get flattery. You should be serving. And you should be putting yourself on the same level as other people. Therefore, they're false. 
Do not call anyone on earth your father. One is your father. He is in heaven. Do not be called teachers. So he's talking about humility here. Whoever's greatest shall be your servant. Verse 13. Then woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You need to go in yourselves or allow those who are entering in to go in. He's reaming them out based on stuff he had observed and seen. And now he's doing it in such a way. There's no like... At the end of this, we don't get up with anybody that pops up and says, Hey, wait a minute. You don't have any backup for this. Hey, wait a minute. You're just making false accusations. He's saying stuff that everybody in that room all going to look at each other and go, You know, he's right. You know, man, this puts it in a whole different light, doesn't it? Why? Because he's studied them. He's crafty. Not only has he studied them, he's opportune. He looked for the right moment to do this. Sound familiar? He picked just the right moment, and he had a plan on how to do it. But his purpose is totally different. He says, you should follow the Christ, but in this case, that's true. And he's about to go die for these people, to save them from their sins, who wanted him crucified. So the difference is, he actually has their best interest at heart, for real. And he's telling the truth. And the Pharisees are looking to trap him in something based on a lie. They're both very crafty. Jesus is simple. The Pharisees are corrupt. And we can look at one more example, and that's David. Let's see here. Let's look at 1 Samuel 27.1. So this is David versus Saul. So we'll start here, and then we'll get four principles here that apply to the Jesus example too. So 1 Samuel 27.1, and David said in his heart, Now I'm going to perish someday by the hand of Saul. I need to escape to the land of the Philistines. Okay. So what's David saying? I cannot trust myself to Saul. I can entrust that Saul is going to kill me someday. I need to get away. He had been studying Saul. Well, let's just reel back a little bit to the story right before that. So the story right before that is this. David and his men come up on Saul and his band there who are chasing him, trying to kill him, and they're all sound asleep. And one of David's men says, God has delivered these guys into your hands. Let me go over there and I'll just kill Saul and you'll be done with this. I mean, now, at that point in time, David could have said, Hey, you're right. God anointed me as king. I'm supposed to be king. This is God delivering Saul into my hands. Go ahead and do it. Could have said that. He doesn't. What he does is he says, Hey, we can't kill the Lord's anointed. The Lord put him in there. The Lord's going to have to take him out. Just go over there with me and let's just get his, his yeti that he has up by his head. You know, his, his, water, his water jug. So they sneak over there and they get his spear and his yeti and they come back. And then they, and then they yell out, Hey Saul, you guys wake up. We've got your yeti and your spear over here. Whoever's supposed to be uh, protecting Saul, you guys totally blew it. Somebody needs to pay for this. And Saul says, hey, David, David, you spared me. You're so righteous. You're great. I'm bad. I'm really bad. I'm sorry. I'm going home. And right after that, David says, man, i got to get out of here. This guy's bad. I'm not going to entrust myself to him. I mean, it worked this time, but it's not going to keep working because I know that guy. See how crafty David is? He gets it. So he goes down. To the Philistines. And he goes to the Philistine guy and he says, Hey, I'll join in with you. Philistine says, Awesome. I've now got the most powerful weapon that Saul has. He's on my side. And so David, crafty now. So David says, Hey, give me a city somewhere. Why should I, why should I deal at your... I'm not worthy to, to eat at your royal table. Give me a lesser city someplace. So he gives him Ziklag. So he goes down to Ziklag, which is in the south. And he starts going over into Israel and raiding Amalekite cities 
that the Israelis had never pushed out. You know, they're supposed to, but they never did. And every time he raids one, he kills everybody there so that nobody's alive to go report anything. And then he brings the, you know, the stuff back that he gets from these wars. And the Philistine guy says, what you been doing? I've been raiding the south of Israel, which was true. He had been raiding the south of Israel. And the Philistine guy thinks to himself, aha, I got him now. He's made himself odious to Israel by killing Israelites. He's on my team now. And he thought that. And David did not correct him. He didn't say, hey, by by the way, lest you think this, he let him think that. So what David is doing is taking this arrogance of this Philistine and using it to his own advantage. So he's crafty, but he he doesn't tell any lies. And he does things that he's supposed to do. You're supposed to get rid of the Amalekites. That's pretty shrewd, huh? And of course, David, as you know, ends up being the uh, king, but because Saul was killed by somebody else. And when Saul is killed, David is uh, really torn up. Not because Saul died, but because his brother Jonathan died, like a brother, and because God's name was soiled. The Lord's anointed's dead, we should mourn. Because he wants to do what God wants to do. The the difference is in the application. All right, so number one, understand your enemies. Okay, this is is the number one. Understand them. You got to look at it. Number two, tell them the truth. Number three, never make it personal. This is not about me making them, you know, paying them back. Never. You don't see that with Jesus. You don't see it with David. It's always the mission. What does obedience look like? What does serving others look like? May look like calling somebody out. May not. Depends. Because we have their best interest at heart. Number four, you recognize their authority. If we're talking about false teachers or false rulers, you recognize their authority while you're doing it. Jesus started his thing railing against the Pharisees with, hey, they have this position. If they tell you something, do it. Only don't do what they say because they don't follow their own, their own uh, teaching. So he recognized their authority. David is recognizing Saul's authority the whole way through. Hey, God put him in there. Before I'm going to be king... God's going to have to take him out and install me. I'm not going to do it myself. Uh, one of his characters, the Lord of the Ring, is Aragorn, the king. And he's waiting for his installment as the rightful king of Gondor. And he says, not for me to take. I need to be asked and invited in. Tolkien's way of reflecting this same biblical reality. And the last thing is, fight. Fight. If you're going to be shrewd, you've got to fight. But you don't fight their way. You don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. You don't fight untruth with untruth. You fight untruth with truth. You don't fight hate with hate. You fight hate with love. But you fight. Jesus fought for the mission. And he called out the corruption of the Pharisees. And then he died for them. Uh, David fought Saul, but in a way that honored God as the ultimate authority. So, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be shrewd. Now, I'm going to end with this. There's a way you can practice this without necessarily being in politics and without necessarily being you know, in a leadership in a church and without necessarily being anywhere. Because all of us carry around a crafty serpent inside of us. It's the flesh. Okay? And that crafty thing is attached to all these other crafty things. It's attached to the world. It's attached to Satan. And you know what it's always doing? Studying you. Coming up with a plan. Looking for an opportune time. And fighting. What does Galatians 5 say? The flesh fights against the spirit. And the spirit fights against the flesh. What are they fighting for? They're fighting so that the mind, which is us. Well, actually, all three of these things is us. We're a trinity, right? The mind is choosing between these two actors. The spirit and the flesh. 
And what does the flesh say it is? Does it say, hey, I'm your, I'm your serpent, I'm your bad thing, and here's what I want you to do? What did we hear false teachers do? They wrap themselves in sheep clothing, right? So the flesh says, hey, I'm your good guy. I'm your good guy. Those people that are saying that about you, they're bad. Don't listen to them. You're wonderful. Look, you had a reason to do that. You had a reason to do that. I mean, everybody has a, a few mistakes. You just made a mistake. You're fine. It's them that has the problem. See how wonderful that sounds? Well, so what do you have to do? Well, you have to study your flesh and figure out which one's talking. And Galatians 5 gives you all these things to say, well, what is it they're asking you to do? Is it division and a pornography and drugs and fits of rage? Is that what it's asking you to do? Well, then that's the wrong one. That's the bad guy. You know, that's the flesh. Or is it like service and love and patience? Is that what he's asking you to do? Well, that's the good guy that's talking to you. So you've got to study and discern. And then you've got to have a plan. And you've got to recognize authority that, hey, you know, God gave me the Spirit and when He asked me to do something, it doesn't have to make sense. It's just what I'm supposed to do. And then you have to fight. This is a fight. The Spirit and the flesh are lusting against. They're fighting. Have you ever watched these, uh, you can see it on Channel 37, these MMA you know, wrestling stuff these guys get in. They've got these little tiny gloves on and they beat each other and they hit each other with their elbows and they kick. And they, but you can basically do anything and blood's all over everywhere it's if you're a male it's kind of fun to watch and terry will come in and say why are you watching that i say nothing else was on i'm doing my elliptical i gotta be anesthetized somehow because i hate it so much so that, that's what your spirit and your flesh are doing. Then they're pow, boom, boom, cock. They're trying to kill each other. But so you'll pick one. And they're fighting. So if you learn to fight this and understand your own flesh, you know what you can do? You can kind of understand everybody else's because they got the same thing. It's all connected to the same place. And then what you can do is be shrewd and still be simple. That's cool, isn't it? That, I'm not sure how we're going to fit that into like a, a Sunday school lesson for uh, the sixth graders, but we need to work on it. <laughs> Okay.